Welcome, everybody, right here to the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites, right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Yes, it's Thursday, so it's time for Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, agriculture, our energy, and our environment. Today, we're going to talk about a report called Diversifying the Agricultural Basket Risks in Conventional Poultry Growing in Maryland's Eastern Shore and Opportunities from, for, from Diversified Local Agriculture. Betsy Nichols, who is Executive Director of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, helped put all this together. Betsy, good to have you in the studio. Thank you. We're also joined by Aidan Irish, who is an agricultural and local food systems policy analyst and a Ph.D. student in the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at Ohio State University. And Aidan, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And joining us once again is Carol Morrison, transitional farmer who went from producing industrial contract chickens for Purdue uh, to raising her own chickens at Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City on the shore, on the on the Demarva, where she raises uh, free-range chickens for their eggs and uh, sells them to the rest of us. And, Carol, good to have you back with us. Thanks for having me, guys. Always good to have you back. So um, where do we begin here? Let's begin, Betsy, I guess, about the genesis of this report. Yes, so... Um Waterkeepers Chesapeake has been working on this campaign called Fair Farms, really looking at um, a, a lot of different aspects of food, farming, and agriculture and how they come together to support our water and our communities. And as part of that question, um, we really wanted to look at some of the economics of what's going on with the poultry industry on the eastern shore. We've heard a lot of claims from the, the industry itself that you know, more and bigger in consolidation results in better economies on the eastern shore. So we asked the question, is that true? Is that what the facts show? Is that what the economics show? Um, is that going to result in improvements across the board for farmers, for food, for systems, and for families? And so we got a researcher, Aidan Irish, um, a policy analyst to help us look into that question and really dig into the facts and find out what what they said from literature reviews, from historical studies with Rodale Institute to on the ground case studies with people like Carol Morrison to find out what the facts were on this issue. So let's, we, we've talked a bunch about this in the show in the past, the question of um, the kind of monoculture that we have in Maryland that was once diversified, but the history of it is, and you talk about this in the report, but the history is um, that we should cover a little bit, um, and Aiden, if you want to jump into this right now, please do, but it's that the, that a lot of this industry, this explosive poultry industry, happened because of World War II, and looking for inexpensive meat to feed soldiers and people in general, and then we had this, the, the growth of the contract farms over the last 50, 60 years it took to kind of build this industry, but that industry has really taken hold. I mean, it's got, it's, it's, it's there on most of the farms. Plus, you have soy and corn that's being grown that feeds that industry. So, so how does that fit into kind of analysis of where we might be given the, the power of where we are and where it came from? Well, I think it's important to realize that there are a variety of factors that have gone into where we are today in terms of poultry production. Um, and you're right, that it has been explosive growth since the 1950s to as of the 2012 agricultural census. Broiler production in the United States has grown from about three quarters of a billion chickens 
to 8.5 billion chickens. That's an increase of 14-fold in a time period when the population slightly more than doubled. Um, And you're right, a significant response comes out of World War II, uh, but most importantly, most of that growth has come um, after World War II um, as a result of cheap uh, feed crops, cheap corn and soybean prices, um, and and because of changes in the market structure um, of the industry, um, as well as advances in technology and mechanization that make make this advance possible. But I think the biggest factor that we need to look at that's important to look at in this industry is the monopolization. Poultry, like many, like much of the meat industry today, is a vertically integrated process. And essentially what that means is that a company, single company, will own the entire process from the hatching of the chicks and the processing of the feed um, all the way through to the slaughter um, and distribution of the final product. Now, this is a highly capital-intensive industry, um, and through a lot of what we've seen throughout the agricultural sector, um, has become concentrated in a a small handful of companies. Now, about three companies control almost 50% of the ready-to-cook chicken in the United States. Um, So when we look at what the industry is today, that, that, that... that economic concentration, the monopolistic concentration, is, is a significant force that needs to take into consideration. So, uh, so it has become this force. I mean, that it, it, I mean, it literally is a force that get, that controls a lot of our agriculture. So the question is, when you look at this, I mean, what 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 what, what jumped out at you all that you didn't expect to find? Anything? I, I think there were a few different things. Um, one was certainly. Uh, an interesting factor about sustainability and the sustainable agriculture and looking at um, how it compared economically with um, these, you know, more intensive monopoly structures and the vertical integration and that acre per acre that you could have equal production but potentially higher economic yield. And those were based on, you know, 30 years of Rodale Institute studies showing this. And that was a pretty, um, you know, pretty astonishing result because not only do you get the higher economic yield, but you have internalized costs there. And what that means is that you're not putting costs of waste or pollution on taxpayers or on the community they're actually included in those sustainable farming methods. So there's really a lot of advantages to diversifying and developing new and different techniques in farming. Carol, let me get... And that last, that last point, um, I'd like if I could jump in really quick. Aiden, go ahead. I think that's probably one of the more most important things we want to take from um, this report is trying to point out is that if we look at the broiler industry simply in terms of volume of production um, and total revenue generated, it has been enormously efficient. The purpose of this report and that agriculture um, analysts in general are starting to step back and take a look at is a, a more of a 10,000 foot perspective on the industry and how, exactly how does that, how we're paying the price for that 
efficient production in other forms, whether it be in environmental pollution, in public health, in economic instability. And that's what this report is, is really looking at is not just economic production, but what are those external, previously externalized costs that are resulting from that, that high volume production. So, I mean, there, there are a couple things here as, I kind of walk, as we walk through the report. Um, and, and the question, you, one of the things you said, um, we, t- we talked about shifting where the money, there would be more money if you shifted to a versified economy, you have a chance of making greater money. But l- let's talk about the difficulty with that. I mean, because it, it, you're talking about the, the marketplace and what the marketplace will bear. You know, one of the things you reason people make money raising chickens, those who do, uh, is because they can raise those chickens uh, picked up by Purdue, Tyson, whoever else are raising them for. There's a market for those chickens all across the country, all across the globe. People buy them inexpensively, inexpensive chicken. Uh, farmers grow the soy and the corn because it feeds that industry and other animal feed industries and other kind of industries around sugar. So, but there's no, so where's the market? I mean, like Carol, you mean, you know, you've had, you've had to fight and struggle to create a market uh, for your chickens at mostly high-end grocery stores, right? Um, yeah, that's correct. And um, here lately, uh, there's been, you know, local sales uh, to individuals, which I didn't really target. Um, my, my target was one outlet. Um, I guess you could say kind of like an because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, it was kind of a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants venture. Um, <laughs> I did com- receive a USDA value-added producer grant, uh, which allowed me to do a feasibility study, a marketing analysis, uh, branding, uh, business plan, and I used my actual figures from what I was doing here on the farm. And through it all, I found that, you know, there were astronomical net profits to be made um, just targeting, uh, you know, a a high-end grocery store. I'm not going to say a specialty grocery store, but a high-end grocery store. Um, And I found also that the, the market at the high-end grocery store, I would never be able to fulfill. The opportunities there are empty. You could, you, 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 by yourself, you could not fulfill them. The demand was so great. No, no, I would never be. I, I could had trouble fulfilling um, the orders of seven stores. And, you know, is that was with 1,200 hens. So, uh, buying wanna, everything. So I'm going to come back to that um, and see where it might go from here. But, and Aiden, it's, so, and the broader question here, though, is um, while the report shows, and as Betsy was talking about, there's, the, the diversification can lead to greater profit in some ways, but part of that is theoretical because the profit right now is built in to the marketplace as it stands, which is built around large operations, whether you're talking about mm-hmm. large organic operations like Driscoll in California, or whether you're talking about uh, Purdue and Tyson Amount air-raising industrial chickens in Maryland, um, where there's this gigantic marketplace for them and also subsidies by the government. So it's, it's, 
it's it's is is it not even a leap to say that if you do, simply diversify is going to change the landscape? Well, once again, I think the the element that we need to take into account is not simply the market volume, but where else we're paying uh, for that price of concentration. Now, the the, the poultry industry, while enormous on the Maryland Eastern Shore, it's not the only industry on that shore. The other one, notably, being the commercial and recreational fishing industry. And, the, and when we take into account the production that uh, that, is, that is, comes from the poultry industry on the Maryland Eastern Shore, it can't. It's uh, naive in the long term to discount the fact that that production comes with enormous weight production that has detrimental impacts on the sustainability of commercial and recreational fishing, fishing industry also in Maryland. So there, there are trade-offs here. If you look just at the, the poultry industry, like I was saying before, um, yes, it's been very efficient, but it's come at, a, come at a price. Now, in terms of shifting to diversification, whether or not that's theoretical, I don't say, I don't think it's safe to say that, I don't think it is um, right to say that it's theoretical. There is significant research by the Kellogg Biological Research Station, by the Rodale Institute, as Betsy has mentioned, and by practice at, uh, by numerous farmers to point out that diversified, not just animal diversification, but crop diversification as well, um, can help better manage nutrient flows, nutrient cycles on farm, um, maintain the soil or I mean, limit soil erosion and reduce those, those externalized that externalized pollution. The other component to keep in mind um, is that waste uh, external or, or pollution that runs off from a farm in the form of erosion is not only a pollution in the, when it reaches the Chesapeake Bay, but it's also a lost resource uh, because it's no longer in the field that where it is beneficial on that, that agricultural farmland. Um, so that's the, and the point here is is that we, yes, while the poultry industry has been uh, significant or has been uh, successful in terms of gross production, um, that has come at a cost elsewhere that needs to be factored into the economic calculus. So that, and I think that's part of the the, the, the issue here. Um, I think in many ways, Betsy, that that um, we when we talk about the the economy, when we talk about the future in building this uh, diversification, let's say, we, we, we don't pollution, the effect on the bay, antibiotics in the chicken, the effect on the workers uh, who, who who catch those chickens, who work those chickens, um, what the antibiotics are doing again in our environment, and in, in, in because of the mass use of chicken other than Purdue, which has stopped using antibiotics, um, that that that's not taken into account when you talk about about. Uh, about how to develop something separately economically. It's like seen as a separate issue. Correct. And that's a big part of the problem. What we're trying to do and, you know, what we were really asking in this report is who do we want to benefit? And we want to take much more of a community viewpoint on this, looking at agriculture as something that benefits entire communities. And in that way, you have to consider these externalized costs and problems such as public health risks, such as impact on the bay, such as the loss of oyster, oysters and crabs caused by pollution and runoff. So we want to make sure that 
farmers and businesses are able to produce you know, chicken and, and, and other livestock and feed uh, the communities, but not at the expense of everything else. So we're looking for what systems can work and fit, feed you know, all of these needs at the same time. So, I mean, so part of the battle here is in terms of changing the way we think about this is, is for people to be, get, for us to begin to think on a larger scale to incorporate these factors in to what it means to have an agricultural, agricultural economy. And that's part of the problem. Uh, absolutely. It, it really is a new way of thinking about things. And we've had things, you know, so many different factors working against us in this, you know, in this arena for a long time from, you know, things you mentioned of subsidies for corn and soybean and, you know, that build this structure up against us. But, you know, it took us over 65 years to get into this system of right. consolidation. Right. We can start working on um, developing a new system that's going to work better for our future. So let's talk about what that means. So, so what does it mean to make a new system? And what, what it's, and and if you, if the majority of farmers on the eastern shore, um, which is where most of the poultry industry is located, um, uh, if the majority of farmers are involved in one level or other with industrial poultry production, because that's how you make people are making their living or attempting to make their living. Then how does that begin to change? I mean, how do you really we've, – we've gone around and around about this for years. I mean, so how does that what, – what are your all, what the ideas that came out of this report and your thoughts on what that transition looks like? Uh, there are a few different things that are pretty straightforward, and some of them I think are going to be a little bit more difficult to implement. In, in terms of the straightforward things, I mean, we have, a, we have a waste issue, that we have a concentration of chicken houses and uh, chicken waste in a really small area. So we have to immediately address that problem, um, find a source to move the waste, regulate that waste, stop combining it in the same area, and stop adding to the problem by consolidating in that same region. Um, another thing is the antibiotics. As you mentioned, that we have a huge problem with antibiotic resistance, and that's largely from livestock, from antibiotic use, um, not to treat sickness, but to prevent sickness and animals. Right. And we already have companies that are stepping up and making changes, like Purdue, as you mentioned. So that's where that starts. And consumers can really push that forward um, on their own with their buying habits and uh, you know, buy products that don't have antibiotics. And that will really change the marketplace on that. So those are some things that can happen pretty quickly uh, that will make you know, a big difference. To get to the point of diversification, is really, you know, getting in touch with some of these companies and understanding some of the risks. We've just seen firsthand some of the risks, you know, of having all of these chicken houses consolidated in one place in North Carolina, where we had Hurricane Matthew come through and chicken houses and hog farms were flooded. Dead animals floating all over the place, disease spreading in those populations. That really poses a huge threat on the eastern shore where we have the same potential risks from sea level rise, from climate change, and the same vulnerabilities there. So there is great advantage to diversification in livestock, in different crops. So getting that sort of awareness amongst the farmers, amongst the businesses, to, uh, to explore those opportunities um, outside of just the one crop, one model system. And also, you know, having a bigger 
uh, investment in local agriculture, in things like food hubs, in CSAs, community-supported agriculture, um, investing in those things and helping support local farm economies. When you buy at the grocery store, farmers only get about 12 cents on the dollar. But when you buy directly from a farmer, they get all of that money. So trying to find new ways to develop those methods can really help support farmers' economies. So from uh, – Carol, I was about to ask you to take the perspectives of farmers. I was going to ask Aiden to take a perspective (laughs) in a macro level. Go ahead, Carol. In addition to what Betsy is saying, I I really – think that there is a great lack of education for farmers, um, you know, if, if or potential farmers, getting farmers. Um, you know, if you look at getting into farming here in this area, the only thing that is promoted is industrial agriculture, um, whether it be through uh state-supported programs or federal-supported programs, um, you know, where you go to get your information, universities, everything is geared toward industrial agriculture. There is nothing there to show opportunities for other types of agriculture. And I think that is sorely lacking. Aiden, what what were you about to say? I thought I heard you. Well, that's a that's a an education point is a really great point. Um, we are and this is not just within Maryland, but nationally, the average age of farmers in the United States is in, is increasing steadily, yeah. um, and that's not being replaced since 1952. Today, we've gone from six million farmers in the United States to less than to, to fewer than two million, um, still managing 51 percent of the national land area is 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 held in agriculture and rangeland. Uh, and that land is an important, not only production, agricultural production resource, but also a, a critical land uh, environmental management resource. The point I'd, I'd also like to add, in addition to the educational component, there is a significant lack of distributed infrastructure um, mm-hmm. that has, has occurred along with this concentration. And I'm sure Carol will attest to this um, in her personal experience. So while the poultry industry is enormous on the Maryland Eastern Shore, um, it is enormously difficult for individual growers operating outside of a growing con- contract with a, a meat production company to get access to, um, to chicks, to get access to feed, to a feed mill, um, and to get access to a, a slaughter facility. I believe there is one mobile slaughter unit for small-scale production on the entire mid-Atlantic um, region. Um, so one of the critical areas that needs to be obstacles that needs to be overcome and a reason that um, local food systems, community supported agriculture, food hubs, these community endeavors, can, ways can, those can be enormously helpful is in pooling resources for the development uh, of uh, critical infrastructure such as slaughter facilities. Um, I believe Carol, I was talking to her some time ago and she, uh, you were talking about and difficulty of getting old chickens to slaughter, and that was not not a feasible option because there isn't availability of that. And that Correct. that is that is a critical issue, not just in the Maryland Eastern Shore, um, but throughout the country in areas that are dominated by industrial operations. And that lack of infrastructure, uh, not combined with the 
prevalence of the industrial industry limits the ability of individual growers to actually have a choice. Theoretically, they have a choice to sell someplace else, but lack of infrastructure makes that practically impossible. Um, well, so that infrastructure component needs to be overcome. Also, in the state of Maryland, when we talk about, um, you know, the the mobile uh, slaughter unit and on-farm slaughtering, which is allowed up to a certain extent, I believe it's 20,000 uh, chickens, the rules and regulations, I mean, you, you're expected now or you have to now uh, recapture wastewater from that process. Well, if you're going to do it on farm, I mean, you have to figure out a way to do this. If not, you need a processing plant that has the capabilities of recapturing wastewater. So it has been made so hard for the small farmers to think of, even think about doing it. You know, they don't know where to start. I, I just think that it, it's an uphill battle where there's no support there for the small farmers. So I mean, so but I mean, because in the report itself, and one of the things in the report is your Carol talking about or your, your situation where you have to buy your um, chicks from New Mexico and the feed from Pennsylvania, and how difficult that is to get the things you want, right? So, so, so the, I mean, so that's what kind of begs the question: is how do you, so you have this report here about the, about that the, the future should li- lie in diversification of agriculture, but getting to that point is what I think is like is the question I'm trying to pursue. And, and I think that um, and how you create this world. I mean, I mean, Aiden, are there examples of places where this is actually happening, where we are talking about this kind of model being developed? Well, this model implies a, a singular model. And, and this is one of the issues that is actually central to what needs to be, I think, what we need to overcome. Industrial agriculture, like much of the industrialized world, is predicated on the, uh, on the assertion that there is a single method of production that is applicable um, universally. Now, agriculture is necessarily an environmentally-based production sector. It is based in the local uh, ecosystem in which it operates. It depends on it. So agriculture and the food systems will depend, will look significantly different in eastern shore of Maryland or Maryland generally compared to, say, southern California. Now, that being said, there are places in the world that are have been for some time experimenting with local food system development. A notable example is the city of Belo Horizonte, Brazil, which has been working on local food system production as a means of solving its urban food insecurity issues, while at the same time tackling the small, the economic insecurity of small farmers in the periphery, uh, peri-urban areas around the city. More close to home, city of Seattle right now has been developed since 2012. It's been developing its local food system plan. And not only for the city itself, city of Seattle itself, but working with adjacent counties uh, or in, in a rural area such as Snow, uh, in the Snoqualmie Valley, east of the city, to uh, purchase and preserve farmland and to develop, help support the development of infrastructure uh, to foster small-scale diversified farming efforts. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that has that is uh, completely untried, and that's those are only two of 
dozens, if not hundreds, of examples. The other thing um, to keep in mind is uh, we're we are in essence taking a look back at history to say what has worked in the past. Local food, historically, local food systems or food systems in general were not thought of um, as being something to be planned because they weren't by the nature of the lack of infrastructure, by the lack of technology, they had to be local to be effective at all. Uh, now, we're not, agriculture today looks very different than it did a hundred years ago. And, we and likely hold- it will look, and, we, and, and likely it will not look, it will look very different a uh, hundred years from now compared to what it looks like uh, now or what it did a hundred years ago. But that being said, there are significant lessons we can draw about um, things that were perhaps taken for granted or or pushed out by the supposed efficiency of industrialized methods um, and international uh, food markets that could potentially benefit from incorporating some of those lessons back into current agricultural policy. So it seems to me that as we wrap up here, that one of the things that, that this report is really fascinating, when it raises the issues of what diversification could mean and what the, the problems with the lack of it has meant to the environment and to agricultural and to the, the business of agriculture itself. But it almost seems to beg the question of of the of the of of the next of the of steps being taken to politically um, and agriculturally, um, economically redefine the agricultural landscape. It's no easy trick, but I mean, that's what that's what that's what it would seem to me to take, Betsy. It's not just, you know. I mean, Carol talks about how difficult it is for her to supply a store, um, and and then those are high end stores. So you're talking about really feeding the nation and feeding people in a community with a diversified system takes complete rethinking of of what agriculture is and how that system works. I I think that's true, and I think that part of the diversifying the system means not not that everyone within the system has to be using the same diversified system. There are people within the system who are doing great in the monoculture um, integrated system. They've put in excellent best management practices, are doing a good job of controlling things coming off of their property and are keeping things clean and it's working out economically for them. Great. Um, you know, perhaps for them, keeping things going the same way makes sense. But there are a lot of people for whom it is not working at all, whether they can't control their pollutants, whether it does not work economically, whether they're at risk, um, whether there are public health problems in the community, um, all of these other reasons. Let's consider other options. And that's where it makes sense to not have all of our government subsidies just go to things like corn and soybean, just go to the industrialized model. Let's explore other opportunities for farmers, for our communities, for our systems. So that's that, and therein lies political questions. So, Carol, a closing thought from you as the farmer in the midst here. Um, I agree with everything that's being said, and from a personal standpoint as a farmer, um, I can't even tell you how many years I thought about alternatives for the farm while we were doing contract farming. And I couldn't come up with anything because there was nothing there 
um, to point me in a direction that would be a viable operation. Um, you know, I, everywhere I looked, there was nothing there. And I kept, you know, I'm, I'm a dreamer. I kept dreaming and dreaming, you know, if only we could do something else with this farm. Um, so I think the idea of exploring it and finding alternatives and pointing farmers in the right direction um, is, is sorely needed. And that's, that's a personal standpoint, you know, from what happened with me and, you know, just the dream of wanting to do something different. But this is really interesting report. I think it's important. I mean, we have to heighten this discussion if we're going to make it work at all um, and, and talk about what change would really take. And I, I, this is a, always kind of a very powerful conversation to have, and I really appreciate the work that Betsy Nichols, Executive Director of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, is doing in getting this stuff out. And, and we should really kind of take this out and really have these large discussions about what this would mean and push this notion of the difficulty and the importance of where we have to take this. Uh, Aiden Irish did an incredible job in writing this report and getting this report together, uh, and uh, who's getting his PhD at the John Glenn, getting his PhD at the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at Ohio State University, uh, agriculture and local food systems policy analyst. Aiden, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And always great to talk to Carol Morrison, transitional of the far, one of our great farmers out there, Bird's Eye View Farm in Pocomoke City, uh, where she raises her chickens in a very free loving way, uh, and I've met her and her chickens out there. <laughs> <laughs> they love visitors, <laughs> and I like their eggs. And so, <laughs> and so, where people, where can people see this report, Betsy? Uh, we have it on our website online at Fair Farms, www.fairfarmsnow.org/slash/diversify-report. So check that out, and we'll be coming back to this and having more ranging discussions on how we can change the way we farm. Good to have you all with us. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Good to have you with us here on The Mark Steiner Show. And in our continuing coverage of Maryland traditions, we're about to have a conversation with Leo Schinholt, who is Maryland's largest maple sugar maker, a recipient of the Maryland State Heritage Award. Also joined by Chad Betterbaugh, who is the co-director of Maryland traditions of the Maryland State Arts Council. And gentlemen, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Leo, welcome. Good to have you with us, man. Well, glad to be with you, sir. So let's take a trip to Cumberland. I wish we actually could be there so I could taste it. Um, so uh, you run this operation called the SNS Maple Camp, right? Yes. My farm is in Cache Valley, right across the creek from Corganville, Maryland. So t- give, me, give us the history of this farm. Well, my grandparents bought this farm in 1931. And they farmed here and worked public works, and then they raised me. And, oh, about 1958 to 60, I become interested. I was just a young, young boy in maple syrup. So I tapped some trees here on the farm, which were blessed with a lot of beautiful sugar maple. And I made my first syrup when I was... Uh, probably 10, 12 years old. And my grandpap helped me, and uh, we worked at it till I left for the Army in 66, 20th of March, 66. And when I come back, uh, went to Vermont, 
me and my grandmother and girlfriend and bought a new evaporator, and that's how it started. And then we just kept building and building. So let's take a step back for a minute. So because uh, we use terms like evaporator, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know what that means. But, I mean, let's, we, people put maple syrup on their pancakes and, every, and lots of other things, you know, all the time. But we don't really have a sense of where it comes from and what you do to get it out of the tree, what it means to tap a tree, what it means to heat up the maple syrup. So t- tell, us, tell us a story about how you make your maple syrup. Okay. Well, in the spring of the year, and, and the times have changed. used to be that around the 12th day of February, we would start to drill our trees. But the weather has changed mm. so much that uh, what it takes is a freezing night and a thawing day. It's when the trees are springing back to life and the water comes from the roots to the bud pockets to make a bud that makes a leaf. All right, we're catching a small percentage of that water, and which is usually 2% sugar. And that's what we process into maple syrup. And the times have changed. We used to do all buckets. Now we have a lot of tubing. And even to the fact we use uh, vacuum on our tubing, that really is a big thing. And the whole sugar industry is turning over to vacuum systems, which produces about one-third more yield per tap hole than just a regular tap. And we used to drill seven-sixteenth seven holes in the tree, two inches deep. We now drill a three-eighths hole uh, in the tree, and it produces as much, and it's not as hard on the tree. But it's complicated but yet it's very simple yeah yeah i understand exactly you put it just i was about to say that i'm I'm glad you said it that way too i mean um and you know the 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 thing about i was thinking about this i watched my sister uh before she just recently passed away but she lived in the mountains of west virginia and she used to tap i forget the tree but she tapped it too it had a peppermint flavor uh it was a birch tree she was tapping birch trees okay for a peppermint flavored syrup um, and I watched her do that same kind of thing. So, and you you have all grades of syrup, right? That you make? Yes, uh, we make all grades what we can. Well, the grading system, the first of the year, has changed, and uh, I've seen it change three times in my lifetime. But now the grading system coincides with the Canadians, and which is good. Uh, we now the light is called a delicate, rich taste. And then you have an amber, rich. And then you have a dark, robust. And the very dark, strong taste. And what we can is the uh, rich taste and the dark, robust. And the dark, robust is a darker color, stronger in flavor, and it is really the best seller, especially it's used a lot. A lot of people associate maple syrup with pancakes. However, times have changed. It is now into the medical industry. They find that it's a cancer uh, fighter. Uh, we have a hmm, A cancer out. fighter, is that what you said? Yes. 
Huh. Yes, they're using it in, in fighting cancer. And I have a recipe out there in the building. Well, matter of fact, I just made a copy for some folks to come in this week. Uh, they're both battling cancer, and huh. it's a mixture of pure maple syrup and baking soda. Leo, one of the reasons I love listening to you is that— This is Chad Butterball. Yeah, this is— uh, we can hear that phrase from you, times have changed from when you started doing this. And, and that, to us at Maryland Traditions, is one of the, one of the markers of a, of a true tradition bearer. And that's part of the reason that we're thinking about the maple syrup tradition out there in Western Maryland. Uh, and in particular, Leo, who has been doing it in his family since the late 1960s, right, Leo? Well, it was around 1960 that I started. My grandpap helped me, and uh, I just had an interest. Why I don't know, but I did, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, just it, it's so it's so wonderful to be working with Leo, and we're working with another uh, family of maple syrup producers as well, the Stoyers of Garrett County, on the Heritage Awards this year. But I can't tell you the number of people that I I talk to uh, here around Baltimore, maybe get out to the Eastern Shore, and they say, "Boy, I never think about Maryland as a maple syrup producing state." But of course, if you think about it, those those two westernmost counties, and probably more than that, that's Appalachia. That's a that's a different region altogether. So. Uh, I suppose it's true what they say about the state being a microcosm of the country. We get yeah, all, yeah, all absolutely is. different geography, different cultures, different traditions, uh, and so it's just it's been it's been great getting to know you, Leo, and uh, and the Sawyers as well. Uh, so yeah, we're looking forward to November. By the way, November, November is November, what? Yeah, November 11th, we're having our Maryland Traditions Heritage Awards at the Cultural Arts Center of Montgomery College down there in Silver Spring, seven nine nine five Georgia Avenue. Uh, that's a free event. Starts at seven thirty p.m. And uh, Leo, along with the Stoyer family, are coming out from Western Maryland to uh, receive their award in the tradition category, maple syrup making, and just talk a little bit about what they do. Well, I'm, I am looking forward, Leo, to uh, one day in the near future really tasting your syrup. I really am. Uh, it's, uh, and maybe it'd be fun to get up there and just do a uh, walk through the woods with you and just do a little story of our own, uh, watching you do your work. Uh, well, Nick, sure. I'd that love to do that. That would be great. This is, uh, this is great. Um, Bring your boots would be my advice. I have plenty of boots. Okay, good. <laughs> and I don't mind walking. In the woods, I love it. So, <laughs> so Leo Shinholt, we've been talking to him. He's Maryland's largest maple sugar maker, getting the Maryland State Heritage Award coming up. That's right. Uh, and uh, Chad Butterbaugh is with us, who, of course, is Butterbaugh, excuse me. That's right. Oh, yes. that's Gene. I'm sorry, man. Butterbaugh, who is co-director of the Maryland Traditions uh, for the Maryland State Arts Council. Chad Butterbaugh, always good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. And Leah Shinhol, great to make your acquaintance and look forward to tasting this incredible syrup of yours. Thank you so much for your time and the work you do for us. Well, thank you, sir. Welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on WEAA. I'm Mark Gunnery. Um, we've been highlighting on Soundbites today some of the work that Maryland Traditions is doing, and this is one of the events that they are promoting. And so I'm here with Freddie Herbert, the Vice President of the Church Council at the Zion Lutheran Church of the City of Baltimore, which is hosting a sour beef and dumplings dinner. And I'm here with Chad Buterbaugh, co-director of Maryland Traditions with the Maryland State Arts Council, and Freddie and Chad, welcome. Thanks, Thanks. Mark. So please tell me about the uh, sour beef and dumplings dinner. 
Well, it's about a hundred-year-old tradition. The the ladies uh, ladies aid society of of uh, Zion has always been very active in in fundraising, and um, you know we start working with the beef a week before, so we you know trim five hundred pounds of beef uh, and then marinate it for several days. Uh, make the stock that goes into the gravy, the the lard that we use to, uh, you know, sear the meat in. And then the day of the event, we'll get as many people there as possible and roll 2,000 dumplings. Uh, and we do the same thing on Thursday where it's even more of a challenge because we serve lunch on Thursday. So we have to, you know, roll quickly. And there's a real art to, to rolling dumplings. You know, you, you can't have any dimples or smiles or they'll fall apart. <laughs> so, so, so this is a, a, both a German tradition and a Baltimore tradition. Right? Yes, yeah. It used to be quite popular in all the different churches. But even church suppers are, are pretty much dying out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people would talk about the smell of sour beef just wafting through the whole city. And sour beef in itself is a Baltimore term. Uh, And the story that I've heard is that the German immigrants wanting to uh, assimilate changed the name of sour broughton to sour beef. Mm -hmm. So so what does it taste like for people who are not familiar with it? It, It's a sweet and sour... uh, kind of gravy. The gravy is the the most challenging and and really the most uh, wonderful part of the of the meal. Uh, and it's that sweet sour. You know, and of course with, with the German ladies, it's either too sweet or too much vinegar or not sour enough. It's wonderful to be in the kitchen. You know, too much salt. No, there's no salt. <laughs> you know. Um we, you know, we have worked that out. But in, in the 50s, when many of the ladies that are there that are stopping now, there was a true hierarchy of who could do who could do what, when, and, and for how long. I mean, I know, well, I guess maybe 10 years ago, it, it took me a while to work my way into the kitchen because the kitchen was Adele and Betty's territory. I mean, they were in their 80s, but, you know, it was their territory, and you had to, you had to kind of slide in there and, and befriend them. <laughs> so how did you manage it? I think I started opening cans for them, because <laughs> we also do red cabbage and green beans. And so I think that's how we got in there. And then, you know, as I said, the, the, the mantle has been turning over for who who can do it, uh, who who does what, and you know Leslie does the lion's share of the work now, and her recruits. And Les- Leslie is uh, the other member of our uh, team of masters that we worked with last year at Maryland Traditions. Uh, we do our apprenticeship program every year, where we identify traditions. Uh, 
that have both experts and interested learners. Uh, so Leslie and Freddie were our two masters, and of course their subject is the sour beef and dumpling dinner, and they worked with an apprentice, Jeff Smith, to pass the knowledge on and to ensure that this tradition gets carried forward. And, and why do you think it's important to be carrying on these traditions, and especially in the context of having like masters and apprentices? Well, I think that we have a lot of ways to remind ourselves who we are, maybe as a nation, as a state. Um, but when it comes to that more intimate level of city or cultural group or even family, we have to develop more intimate ways of expressing our culture. And that's sort of what folk life is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's those traditions of inherited or, or passed down expressions that kind of remind us where we belong and who we are. And uh, the apprenticeship program uh, is, is our way as a state, as uh, the Maryland State Arts Council, uh, of passing traditions forward. And in fact, many states have similar apprenticeship programs where uh, folk and traditional artists would be working together in that way. Um, Freddie, can you tell me a little bit about the history of the Zion Church? The Zion Congregation was founded in 1755, um, and immigration helped it to grow. And in 1808, they built the, the church that is there now. It's kind of interesting because the history says that uh, the first church was built by the members of wood, and it sat on a hill, a sandy hill on Fish Street, which is now Saratoga Street, across from Jonestown, uh, you know, which is now Jones Falls Expressway. Uh, and then we moved around the corner to, to Gay Street and built the bigger church in 1808. Um, and we've been there ever since. And we still continue to have uh, worship services in, in German at uh, 9.15 every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then English is at 11.15. So one more part of uh, the sour beef and dumpling dinner is the beer. Um, will you tell me a little bit about the the beer that you'll be serving at this? I believe we're serving Hofbrauhaus this year. Mm -hmm. uh, sour beef used to be um, a very formal affair at Zion. It was in the dining room. Uh, we have our own dish, uh, plate service. Uh, what was that called? <laughs> anyway, we ha all the all the dishes are designed with the Zion Z. Oh, like the flatware or the yes. sort of yeah. yeah. Okay. Not the flatware, silverware. Oh, that's the silverware. Boy, I don't spend much time in the kitchen. You can tell. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, it was, you know, white linen tablecloths and and uh, real dishes. <laughs> and uh, several years ago, we also opened up upstairs as a beer hall. So that's that served in a cafeteria kind of style, and we have uh, beer and wine to go with with your meal. It's just a gorgeous space up there. From it the is arch a gorgeous ceilings space. and the the stained glass. It's a pretty pretty special place to be. Well, and you have to see it now because we were just lucky enough to be able to uh, fix the peeling paint and repaint it and clean all the the, the carved beams and 
It looks fabulous. Oh, great. I can't wait to see it. Well, come on down. So people can come out today, Thursday. What what time is that? Uh, we serve lunch in the in the formal dining room uh, from 11 to 2. Mm-hmm. And we serve uh, upstairs in the beer hall starting at 4. Uh, we also do carry out both days. Mm-hmm. So people can just can just come by. Where is Zion Lutheran Church for people who want to come out tonight? It's d- right across the street from City Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parish house and garden face uh, War Memorial Plaza, and and people enter through the garden gates. The front of the church sits on you know, on the kind of on the corner between of Gay and Lexington. Mm-hmm. Great. That is Freddie Herbert. Vice President of the Church Council of the Zion Lutheran Church of the City of Baltimore, and Chad Butterbau, Co-Director of Maryland Traditions with the Maryland State Arts Council. And Freddie and Chad, thanks so much for telling us about this. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. And the podcast from Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.